0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. The Alpha course is an 11-week practical introduction to the Christian faith. How can I resist evil? Why and how do I pray? How do I read the Bible? How does God guide us? What is his will for our lives? Some of you say, I wish I knew more about the scriptures or had an understanding of the basic things of the scriptures. Or maybe you have friends that would benefit from that. Uh, we offer it every Wednesday night starting on September the 5th. 6.30 starts with a meal. We provide you with a full meal. And then also we provide you with child care. So uh, RSVP, there's a table in the hallway that you can sign up and be a part of that. Actually, last hour, UMHB soccer and volleyball teams are with us. Uh, they were here last hour, but we've got a lot of students. If you're a student, raise your hand wave at me over there. There we go. Got our students back. Welcome. Good to have you. Good to have you. You heard all the announcements about sea life and stuff. Every year we rent Summer Fun uh, just for TBC and your friends and family. So that's this Wednesday night, 6.30 Summer Fun. Ten bucks will get your family in, five bucks for a single. And uh, if money's an issue, just come anyway. We'll take care of you. But it's just for us and family and friends. So make an evening where you expose uh, friends to the body and come out and enjoy it. Uh, let me remind you, modest dress is important for those events. 6.30 tonight in the chapel, we've got a team that was in Zambia, Africa this summer, and they're going to share with you their journey and the things God taught them. There's also dessert involved, so join them in the chapel across the hallway, 6.30 tonight, right here at TBC. And finally, ladies the women's retreat is filling up, 50 slots left. It's October 12th through 14th, Camp Allen in Nevisota texas lots of other things the racks in the hallway have all the inserts that you normally would have in a bulletin Uh, we're seeing if we can get away from that so take a look out there stop there there'll be two more next week in the hallways Uh, it's called current because we want to keep you current on what's happening at tbc so take a look at those find them and uh, utilize those for your growth exodus chapter two if you have your bibles would you open them with me to exodus chapter two We began a study last week that's going to take us all the way up to December, all the way up to Christmas. We're calling it Prophets and Kings. Specifically, we're looking at the interaction between Prophets and Kings in the Scriptures different prophets had spoken to the lives of different kings. This week we're going to look at Moses. Next week we're going to look at uh, Saul and Samuel, then David and Nathan, then Solomon, and uh, highlight numerous kings in the nation of Israel and the prophets had spoken to their lives. Stephen did a good job last week of explaining that the prophets were basically those who stood outside of the city and they called the people in the city to repentance. They stood outside the culture in some ways and called the culture to repentance. And so what you see in the graphic in your hand the graphic in front of you the graphic in the hallways is the prophet on the outside calling the people on the inside moses is a little different we'll talk about that in a second but before we do that let, let me give you two words that describe the primary function of the prophet so, several of you asked what's the primary function of a prophet two words rebuke and reveal rebuke and reveal say those words with me rebuke and reveal rebuke Reveal. If you're writing your Bibles or you're writing your notes, write those two words down. The function of the prophet was to rebuke the sins of the nation, the king and his people. To rebuke. Secondly, it's to reveal, to reveal the will of God. Sometimes the prophet foretold the future. He revealed the will of God, like for the coming Messiah, his coming kingdom. So he spoke prophetically into the future. More often than that, though, he spoke about the present. He was calling the nation to repentance. He he was revealing the will of God for the present. You should respond this way. You should respond to God this way. You should repent of your sins. So the function of the prophet is twofold. Repeat them with me. Rebuke and reveal. Two words to remember about the prophet. The Hebrew word prophet itself is the Hebrew word nabim, N-A-B-I-M. N-A-B-I-M really means prophets. It's an interesting word. It literally means to bubble forth. To bubble forth. It's used of an artesian well that bubbles forth water. It means to bubble forth. And what that teaches us is that the prophet bubbled forth not his own words, but the words that God gave him. So when you read of the prophets and you hear the prophets, <coughs> excuse me, they're not speaking their own words, their own desires, but they are speaking the very words that God has placed within them. So we begin our study of a specific king this week. We look at a, a, and a prophet this week. We look at uh, the king, whose name is Pharaoh. We look at the prophet, whose name is Moses. Let's pray. Father, as we look at uh, the greatest of all prophets, as you call him in Deuteronomy, Moses. Lord, we pray that uh, we might learn through his example. But more importantly, we would learn about you. We learn about your holiness. We would learn about following you, trusting you, clinging to you. And so, Father, we come really to focus upon you. Teach us, in Christ's name. Amen. Being a prophet was not an easy task. All you had to do was ask Moses. I mean, he is the prophet who was called to confront Pharaoh. It was not an easy task. In fact, it was a difficult task. It was even, in Moses' case, quite a fearful task. Moses is called to confront the most powerful man in the world in charge of the most powerful kingdom at that time. The superpower of that day was not the United States, not Russia, not China, but the superpower of that day was Egypt. <clears throat> and the head of Egypt was a, was a king who was called Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the king of Egypt, the greatest superpower of that day. Moses is called upon to lead the nation of Israel out of the bondage area. And time after time, when you hear Moses speaking, he calls, he goes to Pharaoh, and his words are the same. His words to Pharaoh are what? Let Yeah, there it is. Let my people go. You taught that from the time you were in nursery school all the way up in Sunday school. And Moses goes to Pharaoh time after time and he says, God has said, let my people go. Moses is fearful. I mean, he recognizes the situation he's in. Israel's been in bondage for 400 years. And Moses is fearful because he was a prophet who had been on the inside. He's a prophet who had been on the inside of the city. If you remember Moses' story, when he was a child, Pharaoh had ordered all the Hebrew boys to be killed. Moses' mother wisely sought out a place where she could perhaps have her son saved. Acts chapter 11, a commentary on Moses' life said she put him in a basket, floated him down the river. She knew where Pharaoh's daughter would be. Pharaoh's daughter finds this young Hebrew boy, and she spares his life. Moses grew up, according to Acts 7, in the palace. He was an insider. He grew up in Pharaoh's palace. But then when Moses was about 40 years old, by the way, Moses' nursemaid was whom? Do you remember who, who, who became his nursemaid? His own mom. You see, what happened is when Pharaoh's daughter found Moses, his sister Miriam was watching what happened. She went and told the mom Jacobet what had taken place. She goes running to the, Pharaoh's daughter, and she becomes the nursemaid of her own son. She gets paid to raise her own boy. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, only God could arrange a deal like that. And so here she is, she's raising her son, whispering into his ear as he's growing up, you may be on the inside, but really, Moses, you're an outsider. You may be inside of Pharaoh's palace, but the reality is you're a Hebrew, Moses. You're my son. And so here is Moses, about age 40, and he goes out into the streets of the Hebrew community, he sees an Egyptian beating up a Hebrew, and when that happens, he steps in and he takes the life of an Egyptian. And so Moses recognizes the very next day, actually, he's called in the carpet, and and he realizes he's got to flee for his life. And for the next 40 years, Moses becomes a fugitive, becomes a fugitive on the run. And so the insider became an outsider. He had been in the palace, but now he's outside the palace. Now he's not only outside the palace, he's outside of the entire nation. He's on the run. And it's quite interesting how Moses gets called and what happens in Moses' life. It begins with the nation of Israel crying out to God. It begins with the nation of Israel crying out to God and God hearing their cry. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, the nation cries out unto God. Look at 2.23. It came about, open your Bibles, your apps, Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. It came about in the course of those many days, the king of Israel died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So the nation of Israel, there's a new king in the land, and all of a sudden they cry out because the task is heavy and they recognize their burden. So if you look at verses 24 and 25, focus upon the verbs there. God heard, God remembered his covenant, God saw, God took notice. And if you look at the verbs that are there, it's God responding to the desperate cries of the Israelites. In verse 23 you see the desperation of the Israelites, verses 24 and 25, the compassion of God. God looked, God saw, God heard, and so quite simply in their desperation God answered. They called unto God, God responded to them. Let me make a brief point and I'll move on. When desperate times come to your life, call out to your compassionate father. It's a simple statement, but how difficult it is for us to remember at times. When desperate times come, your first resort, not your last resort, should be to call and turn to your Father. See, it's amazing to me in 31 years of ministry here to see where we often turn to when desperate times come. We turn to a familiar friend, we turn to a familiar foe. We turn to a bottle, we turn to a pill. We turn to a family member, we turn to a friend. Not that those are wrong, but our first resort, not our last resort, should be to our Heavenly Father. In Discipleship Journal a number of years ago, there was a young man who wrote an article. He was 34 years old. His wife was taken suddenly through a pulmonary embolism. Six months after she had passed away, he wrote this article. In this article, he writes, For now there is mourning and grief. I am sad for the loss of my companion, my lover, my best friend. I grieve for the years we might have shared together, and I grieve for my children who must navigate the rest of their life without their mother who loved them. I struggle with the loneliness and the heaviness of the days and the nights. I know it will not always be this way, but I struggle now. I have found my Savior as never before. I used to pray politely, using all the right phrases. Now I cry out like a lost and lonely child. I have prayed on my face. I have reached for the hem of his garment. I have held my hands aloft in the darkness of the night, seeking to grasp his hand. I never used to pray that way. Instead of praying politely, now I pray desperately to my Father. In desperate times, turn to the one who is all-powerful. Turn to the Father who is compassionate toward you. Some of you are in desperate times right now, I don't know what that desperation is. Things at home are not the way they should be. Things at school are not the way they should be, and you're two days into it. You turn to the Father, and you call unto him. Let him be your first resort, not your final resort. Well, God hears their call, and so he calls someone. He calls a reluctant rescuer. He calls the prophet Moses. Now, let me remind you, for 40 years, Moses has been tending sheep and goats. Moses has been in the Midian wilderness. kind of looks like this. Here's a picture from that area. Kind of looks like West Texas, doesn't it? I mean, when you look at that, this is what the shepherd or the goat herder did in that day. They would leave for weeks or months at a time. This isn't gone overnight and coming back in. You would take your sheep, take your goats for a week at a time. You would find places for them to eat, places for them to drink, shelter for the night, protect them by day. And after a few weeks or a few months, then you would head back home to be with your family. We don't know how long Moses has been on the task on this particular journey, but he's out in the wilderness. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, a Midian priest. He led the flock to the west side of the wilderness, came to the mountain of Oreb, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. I am, can you imagine Moses is walking along it's, it's, it's a normal day it's a day like every other day he's probably walking along with the staff and he's taking care of his sheep and he's making sure that they're protected making sure they're cared for maybe they just had a drink maybe they just had been grazing whatever else and as Moses walks along he hears a voice Moses! Moses! and he begins to look around and I imagine he's thinking I've been out in the sun too long this desert is getting a little hot been along with the sheep, alone with the sheep way too long or something. He looks around and he sees no one, but he sees a fire in a bush and he goes to get a little closer. And the next words he hears is, take your sandals off. Moses, you're standing on holy ground. You're standing on holy ground. There was nothing remarkable about the bush. There was nothing remarkable about the desert. What was remarkable is that God was in the midst of it. It's a holy place. Taking your shoes off, your sandals off is a sign of respect, a sign of honor in the ancient Near East. As you're standing on a holy ground. By the way, I, I pray that you have a holy a place with holy ground. A place where you it, it may be your study behind a closed door, it may be in your office behind a closed door, it may be in your bedroom, maybe on your knees in your living room, in a couch, it may be at the kitchen table, but a holy place where you meet God to worship Him, to be in the Word on a regular basis. You got a holy place? It's a place where God meets you and you meet God. If you don't, chances are you're very sporadic in your encounters with God. If you've got a time and a place where you meet God, you're going to do it on a regular basis. If you don't and it's haphazard, it's going to be catch as catch can. Moses comes to holy ground. God meets Moses at that place. He says, Moses, I've heard the cry of your people. I've heard the cry of your people. Look at verse 6. He says, I am the God of your father Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. He hid his face and he said, I've seen the affliction of my people. They, they, they have a hard taskmasters. I'm aware of their sufferings. I've come down, verse 8, to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. I imagine Moses thinking, what does this got to do with me? I mean, I, I, I'm in the wilderness. I'm taking care of my father-in-law's sheep. I've been gone from Egypt for 40 years. For 40 years he's been gone. Dad, what, 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 what why are you telling me about this issue? Because Moses, verse 10, in Exodus 3.10, he says, Therefore, come, and I will send you to Pharaoh. And I imagine Moses' mind went blank at that point. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. Moses had been in that palace. Moses grew up in that palace. Moses had been in that place. And he says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and you will free my people. You will bring my people out of Egypt. I mean, if anybody knew the power and the might of Egypt, it was Moses. If anybody knew the military might of Egypt and how the Israelites would fare against the military might of Egypt, it was Moses. I mean, he knew that sending the Israelites up against the Egyptians they had. They didn't have a chance. It'd be like asking a high school football team to go up against the Dallas Cowboys. Actually, that's probably unfair. <laughs> Got to come up with a different analogy there. All three hours. But, but you get my drift. I mean, it's like asking the impossible to take place, saying, you know, you're going to go in, and you're going to demand a Pharaoh to let two million people leave the nation who are slaves there, doing labor for there. It's going to affect their economy. It's going to affect everything with Egypt. And he's going to, Moses says, uh, you can imagine in his mind, what does Moses do? Moses says, God, I'm the man. God, you called, I'm going to follow. God, if you say I'm it, I'm going to follow because it's all about you. Is that what Moses did? Just the opposite. Just the opposite. It's pretty interesting. What Moses does is five times he makes excuses, five times he objects. I mean, it's amazing to see what Moses does. In chapter 3, verse 11, as soon as God calls Moses, he says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? There's one word that occurs three times there. What is it? I. Moses' focus is not upon God, it's upon himself. Anytime your focus is upon yourself, you're going to fail. I, 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 I. Moses says, I can't do it. The reality is Moses is right. He can't. But Moses' first objection is, who am I? Who am I? His next objection is, who are you? I mean, where have you been the last 400 years? When I go to the people and and tell them that I've been sent, who am I going to say sent me? So if you look at Exodus 3.13, he says, Behold, I am to the sons of Israel. I shall say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they will say to me, what is his name? What should I say to them? It tells you where the nation was at that point in time. They were not trusting in, leaning to, leaning into God, trusting in Him, turning to Him. They started crying out after 400 years of being in bondage. And Moses says, "I got to know who You are. I've got to tell them who You are." So God says, "Moses, when you go, tell them Yahweh sent you. I am who I am, the everlasting One, the One that always has been, the One that always will be. That's who is sending you." So you would think that would be enough for Moses, but then Moses turns to God and he says in chapter 4, verse 1, what if, he's got the what if syndrome now, what if this would happen, what if this would happen, what if this would happen, what if this would happen? God, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say, for they may say the Lord has not appeared to you. God, when I left, I was a fugitive. They're going to think I'm coming back to grab power. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, a commentary of Moses' life, you can read it. That's what he thought they would think. He said, I went up to deliver them earlier when he killed the Egyptian, but they didn't realize it was me that was supposed to lead, etc. And so, God, how do I know they're going to believe me at this point in time? God, verse 10 God gives him evidence. He says, Moses, I want you to know, here's proof of the power. If they don't believe in you, they'll believe in me. Moses, throw your stick on the ground and it becomes a snake. Moses, put your hand in your shirt, pull it out. It's leprous, put it back in. It's clean. Moses, not only that, I can turn the Nile River into blood. You would think Moses had all the fodder he needed. I mean, he should be as confident now as Usain Bolt was in running races two weeks ago. I mean, you know, I, he, he should have full confidence. Now, God has demonstrated, God has performed miracles, he's turned his rod into a snake, he, he, he's made a leprous hand clean, etc. You would think Moses would have all the confidence in the world, but not Moses. In chapter 4, verse 10, Moses objects again. He makes another excuse. God, it, it, please, Lord, I, I've never been eloquent, nor recently, nor in time past, nor since, spoken, since thou hast spoken to thy servant. I am slow of speech, I am slow of tongue. God, I don't talk too good. You got the wrong person. If somebody needs to go talk to Pharaoh, it needs to be somebody who's a quicker thinker and a quicker speaker than I am. You know, I've got a southern drawl. I'm from like Mississippi or Alabama or something. Just didn't come out real quick. Sorry to all my friends from Mississippi and Alabama out there, but I should have just said Alabama because I don't like that place anyway. <laughs> and then he says, God... God says, Moses, what's his answer? Moses, who made your mouth? And Moses, you're worried about talking. Who in the world do you think made that thing you're speaking out of? And then he says, uh, fifth objection, he says, please, Lord, now sin. Verse 13, the message by whomever you want. The Berkeley Bible says, uh, it translates, says, God, please sin anybody. Sin anybody, but not me. But not me. Moses is filled with excuses. Sometimes God calls you to a task, and rather than responding, what do you do? Not me. Make excuses. Make excuses. God says, I want you to start that Bible study in the office, and you come up with 15 reasons why you can't. God says, I want you to teach some kids, and you come up with a dozen reasons why you can't. God says, I want you to go and reconcile that broken friendship, that broken relationship. I want you to go and get counseling for your marriage that's in need of it. And you come up with a thousand excuses why you shouldn't do that. When God calls you to a task, when God calls you to a task, he's going to equip you. The very first thing God did when Moses first asked the question, who am I? If you look at the very next verse, if you look at verse 12, he he says, who am I that I should go? And God's answer is Moses, I will be with you. When God calls you to a task, he goes with you to accomplish that task. So we've got to quit making excuses. Excuses. Excuses come in all shapes and forms. I mean, you going back to school this week. Young people going back to school this week? Kids going back to school? How many parents are glad their kids have gone back to school this week? Let me. There you go. We need to talk to them first. Uh, excuses come in all shapes and forms. Here are some excuses why kids miss school. These are letters from parents. Chris will not be in school because he had an acre in his side. Now, that's one big boy right there if he had an acre in his side. I'm going to tell you that. Uh, my son is under doctor's care and should not take P.E. today. Please execute him. Uh, please excuse Mary for being absent. She was sick and I had a shot. <laughs> Excuses, man, they come in all shapes and forms. Why aren't you doing it, God? Because, I, you know, you fill in the blank. But God says, I want you to know, if I call you to task, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. That's what he promised Joshua. Joshua was to fill the sandals of Moses later on. You fast forward through the book of Exodus. Moses leads the nation to the, uh, towards the brink of the promised land. Joshua's to lead the people into the promised land. He's to step in Moses' sandals. Here's God's promise to him. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, Joshua. Just as I have been with Moses, what's he say? I'll be with you. Later on in that same chapter, Joshua have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you. And then you go to Hebrews chapter thirteen, verse five I will never desert you, nor will I leave you. I am going with you every step of the way. The greatest thing you can know whenever you are called to a task is that the living God not only equips you, he goes with you. If you don't think that means anything, you need to come with me to the delivery room and talk to the couple who's just lost a child who was still born and ask him if the presence of God makes a difference in their lives. You need to come with me to the cemetery and stand and ask the widow or the widower if the presence of God makes a difference in their lives. You need to ask the soldier who's been to Afghanistan or Iraq or his family and ask them if the presence of God makes a difference in their lives. Or you need to come with me and, uh, to, the, to the kid who's been abandoned by a mom and a dad and, and ask if the presence of God makes a difference in their lives. You need to ask the recently divorced if God's presence makes a difference in their lives. One of the greatest promises we have is God saying, I will never leave you nor desert you. When I call you to a task, don't make an excuse do what I ask. Do what I ask you to do. Do what I ask. So you know what happens next. You know what happens next. Moses listens to God. He obeys God. And he confronts Pharaoh. The prophet goes to Pharaoh. He goes back on the inside to be on the outside for 40 years. And he goes to confront Pharaoh and he does this through a series of things called the plagues. He does it through the plagues. And when you understand the purpose of the plagues, you understand what the prophet is doing with Pharaoh. Here are the purpose of the plagues. First of all, for God to free his people from bondage. God has said in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and following, I've heard your cries, I am going to free you. He said, I've heard your cries, I'm going to free you. If you turn to chapter 6... He says very clearly in chapter 6, verses 6 and following, he says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you. In fact, I will place you in the promised land. so the first purpose of the plagues was for God to fulfill his covenant, that the people would be freed from bondage and they could settle into the promised land. The second reason the plagues took place was for Egypt to know that the Lord is God. For Egypt to know that the Lord is God. If you turn to chapter 7, verse 5, which you see in chapter 7, verse 5, it reads there, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring the sons of Israel from their midst. He says when the Egyptians see the plagues take place, when they see these various things will happen, they will know that I am God. You want to see a really neat deal? Fast forward with me to chapter 12. If you go to chapter 12, by the way, if you're new here, we use our Bibles a lot at TBC. We ask you to bring them with you and to use them. If you've got an app, that's just as good. You can turn there. In Exodus chapter 12, it says in verse 38, this is a neat deal. God has said, I'm bringing about the plagues so that the Egyptians will know that I am God. So you go to Exodus chapter 12, verse 28. The plagues have taken place. The Israelites are leaving Egypt. They're headed towards the promised land. It can take them a long time to get there, 40 years. But as they're going, in verse 38, it says, A mixed multitude went up with them, along with the flocks and herds and a very large number of livestock. What is the mixed multitude? Who who are these people? A mixed multitude. Well, God has said, I am going to reveal through the plagues that I am God so the Egyptians could know it. And then when you look at it, it says in chapter 7 that some of, some of Pharaoh's servants believed that he was God through the plagues. The mixed multitude were the Israelites and the mix was the Egyptians who believed that indeed Yahweh was God. They took off with some of the, with some of the Egyptians took off with the Israelites because they saw God through the plagues, recognized who he was in this mixed multitude or some of those who now trust in and believe in the risen God, the living God. And so God brings about his purpose so that some of the Egyptians can know him. One of the purposes of the plagues is to judge hardened hearts. Hardened hearts. On that brochure you have in your hand, it's got all the verses listed where it says, And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But nine times in these verses it says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He saw the work of God, but his heart was hardened. Here's the tragedy. Some of you are like Pharaoh today. You have seen the hand of God. You've seen God change the hearts and lives of some of your friends and some of your family members. You've seen the power of God on display in any number of ways. You've seen the hand of God at work. You can remember a time when your heart was tender, but now it's hard. You can remember a time when you long for God, but no longer is that longing there. You can remember a time when you did have a holy place and you met God on a regular basis, but your heart is no longer tender. Your heart has become tough. And instead of being tender, it's hardened towards the thing of God. This morning I pray for you. I pray that you would ask the living God to soften your heart once again. You've become hardened because of sin. You've become hardened because of trials. You've become hardened because of disappointment. Something has hardened your heart and is no longer tender to the things of God. So he's saying, you're not taking your eyes off of me, that's me. There was a time when I was tender towards the things of God. There was a time when I thought you looked at me the whole time you preached. now. It doesn't feel that way anymore. Your heart has become hardened in some way. The plagues were God's judgment against Pharaoh and his people because of their hardened hearts. I pray that your heart would be softened. The plagues were a battle between gods. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at every one of the plagues, it was really a battle between the God and a God. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Look at Exodus chapter 8. In Exodus chapter 8, you know, there there are 10 different plagues, and this seems kind of random. I mean, when you first read it, you're thinking, what is this about? Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go, if they don't, it, it, so that they can serve me. If they refuse, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. Doesn't it seem kind of random to you? I mean, out of all the animal kingdom, why would God say, I, I'm gonna smite the whole land? I'm, I'm just gonna I'm gonna load you up with frogs. I mean, that isn't that kind of weird. I mean, why? That's random. Why would God say, out of all the animals, I want you to know, if Pharaoh, if he doesn't let the people go, tell him I'm going to smite the land with frogs. Look at what it says in verse 3. The Nile will swarm with frogs. They're going to come up in your house. They're going to be in your bedroom. They're going to be in your bed. They're going to be in the houses of your servants. They're going to be on your people. They're going to be in your ovens. They're going to be in your kneading bowls. I'm going to tell you, my wife down here, if we had frogs in our ovens and kneading bowls in bedrooms, she's going to say, you go get right with Pharaoh right now, whatever it takes. (laughs) I mean, everything you have to be filled with frogs. So verse 4, the frogs will come up on you and your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, over the pools, and make the frogs come up on the land. So Aaron stretched out his hand, verse 6, and the frogs came up and they covered the land of Egypt. The magicians couldn't do what he had done. And so Pharaoh said, please get rid of all these frogs and I'll let your people go. Verse 8, why in the world would God say, I want you to call up frogs and they're all over the place? Because of this dude right here. Because of that dude. Hekwit. You can Google it up. You take a look at it. Go to Google. Go to images. You're going to find stones. You're going to find artwork. You're going to find wood carvings of Hequit. Hequit was the Egyptian goddess of birth or creation. Hekwit was half man, half frog. Actually, half woman, half frog. She, she was the goddess of birth and creation. And so when God says, if you don't let my people go, frogs are going to come everywhere, what he's saying is, I'm going to show you that I am greater than your goddess that you worship, the goddess Hequit. I'm going to show you that you think Hequit is the creator and the one who gives birth. I am greater than that. I'm going to to bring frogs up from everywhere, and then I'm going to kill them to show you that I'm greater than this goddess that you worship. But one of the plagues is darkness. The whole land became dark. One of the gods that was worshipped by the Egyptians was what? The sun. One of the greatest gods in the Egyptian pantheon of gods. Ray, the sun god. And so God says, we're going to make the land dark to show that Ray has no power. Ray is really a false god, and the false god is no god. I'm God, and so he calls the whole world to go black at that time. One of the gods was Pharaoh. Pharaoh himself was a god to be worshipped. So Pharaoh's a god, when Pharaoh died, who became the next god? When he died, who became the next god? His son. So look at Exodus chapter 12. Now we move to the time of Passover. Passover is over, and you know that Passover is a day of judgment and a day of liberation. It's a day of judgment on those who do not apply the blood to the doorposts. It's a day of liberation for those who do. It's a day of judgment against the Egyptians, a day of liberation for the Israelites. So in chapter 12, we see that Pharaoh is a god. He is to be worshipped. His son is his replacement whenever he dies, whenever he's taken out of power. His son becomes a god, and God is showing, I'm greater than all your gods. So in Exodus chapter 12, verse 29, it says, When it came about at midnight, this is Passover night, the Lord struck the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the first of Pharaoh. To the firstborn of the captive in the dungeon, to the firstborn of all the cattle. The prophet has said the true God is greater than any God that you have. In fact, he's greater than your frog goddess, he's greater than your sun God, and he's greater than your Pharaoh. He is the true and living God. And the prophet stands before Pharaoh, the one who is an insider, who became an outsider, is now an insider again inside the palace, God is the only God. You know, when you look at this story, there are some insights that jump out at you. The Israelites are worshipping idols, they're worshipping false gods. I'm sorry, the Egyptians are worshiping false gods. They're worshiping idols. These false gods are really no gods. They have no power. They're rocks. They're sticks. They're things of nature. Versus the God who's created all that stuff. And yet it's amazing how quickly we, like them, replace the living God with idols. I don't have any idols. I mean, I, I don't worship a rock or a stick or a stupid-looking frog. I mean, Kermit looks a lot better than that thing looks. I don't worship that stuff. Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, is a great author and speaker. His book, Counterfeit Gods, I read it a couple of years ago, went back and reread it this week. And he says this, he says, We men that physically kneel before a statue. But many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. And we, not, we may not burn incense to a piece of wood, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we too perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting our families and community to achieve a higher place and status in business and gain more wealth and prestige. So don't tell me, Keller writes, that you don't have idols. We bow at the idol of success and self. We bow at the idol of sex and entertainment and exercise of a hobby. We bow at the idols of family and food and football. We bow at the idols of pornography and pills and booze. Anything that takes the place of God when we should turn to him is an idol. And so when he becomes the last resort, that first resort you come to, you're really saying, I trust in the power of, and you fill that in. Because that's where you're turning. Interesting conclusion to the prophet's life, to Moses' life. There's a commentary of Moses in Hebrews chapter 11. When you're Hebrews chapter 11, the first word that comes to your mind is what? <coughs> Hebrews 11, first word. Faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. By, Mo, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Isn't that interesting? He had the opportunity to enjoy everything in the palace, to enjoy the pleasures of the palace, but he chose not to. Rather, he chose to be part of the people of God. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. He said, I would rather suffer for what's right than to do and participate in what is wrong. So my question for you, are you trusting a God or the God? Are you trusting a God or the God? Some of you saying, Gary, I've been trusting in the wrong God. Would you pray for me? I will. Gary, I, I've got an idol, something I cannot and will not give up. Would you pray for me? I will. Gary, I'm more reluctant than Moses to do something that God has asked me to do. Would you pray for me? I will. Gary, I'm the person you're talking about. My heart used to be tender towards the things of God. But now it's tough and hard. Would you pray for me? I will. That's what I'd like to do this morning. That's what I'd like to do. If your heart is tough instead of tender... You've got an idol in your life you want to give up? Been trusting in the wrong thing? Or maybe you know you've been called to do something and you are reluctant to do it. I want to pray for you this morning. Pray for you. Pray that God will let you see that he will be with you every step of the way and he will replace that idol who will make your heart tender and he will equip you to do what he's called you to do. So I'm going to pray for you. Father, right now, right now, I intercede on behalf of these dear ones that I love. Some fathers who've been called by you, they've been equipped, they've been trained, but they're reluctant. They're caught up in the busyness of the world, caught up with wanting things, uh, the pleasures of this world, Rather than you, intercede on their behalf. Got other friends here, Father, who have been hurt. Who've been hurt by folks like me in ministry or been hurt by leaders. Who've been hurt by a loved one. Been hurt by a spouse. Rejected and their heart has become tough instead of tender. I pray for them. Others of us have idols in our life. Things that we turn to before we turn to you things that we will not give up, things we will not walk away from, and we know it's wrong to embrace them. God, strip us from those idols. Father, it will be a painful process for some because we find our significance in those idols, but I pray you take them away nonetheless. And Father, we thank you for being the God who is all-powerful over all other gods. And it's you we worship. It's you we bow before. It's you we honor. And it's you we give all glory to. In the name of our Savior we pray. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.